Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Joylyn Meniachi. Joylyn is the creatix founder of the Happiness Clinic. She works with high-functioning women to release childhood trauma and create new neural pathways so that they can get unstuck, stop emotional reactivity, end emotional addiction, and be confident and happy. She is fierce and unwavering in her belief in a person's inherent value and ability to be off the charts happy. Woo! Her coaching doesn't have a name because she uses everything, all of her training and lived experience to help you remodel the relationship you have with yourself so you can have more you in your life. Discover, remember who you really are, the joy of embodiment and relationships so that you can create the future of you would like to have as a reality now. We're honored that Joy Lynn has shared some of her time with us today. How are you doing today, Joy Lynn? I'm doing great, Tim. How are you doing? Couldn't be better. It's a Friday, you know? Yes, yes. So I want to frame our discussion a bit. On your website, you mention your experiences with eating eating disorders and your depression, as well as other unique experiences while growing up. And I would imagine most of these cause some extreme feelings and emotions. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little about your story and how you got here today. And feel free, take your time. Yeah. So I think similar to a lot of people in this situation, I arrived where I am like a pinball machine. You know, you just kind of bounce off of things. Um, And so I grew up in the Midwest. I'm the youngest of four girls. I am an identical twin. So I'm the youngest of that pair as well. And my growing up experience, everything looked perfect from the outside. We sat in a row in church. Everything looked great. But on the inside, it was not so great. There was um, some abuse. And uh, from that and not knowing and, and I was, I think, in my 30s before I labeled the abuse as abuse, because in my mind, it wasn't as bad. It wasn't a made for TV movie kind of abuse. My mind had blocked some of it out. And then some of it was just so normal that I didn't realize how that impacted my brain and my functioning. 
And I had a very high functioning alcoholic father and an emotionally manipulative mother and uh, an uncle that was is now a convicted pedophile. So that's kind of like the upbringing, but again, looks perfect from the outside. But what it ended up for me was just not having a strong sense of self. Like even as an identical twin, figuring out who I was based on somebody else. So constantly comparing myself and and high functioning. That's just like a perfectionist because that's one of the coping mechanisms. So perfectionist, but never feeling confident. And so going through a lot of life that way and then just not knowing and for me how to handle really intense emotions because I'm just a highly sensitive person. Like I work with a lot of empaths. Um, people who can pick up a lot from the outside and just not knowing what to do with the information and then being kind of unclear of who I was so that when things did get intense, my first reaction was to peace out. Like, I guess I'm the problem, which is actually what a child brain does. Oh, I'm the problem. Then I can fix the problem. And I didn't recognize that. And then women, uh, daughters of alcoholics tend to have more somatic issues where men tend to go a little bit more into the aggression or suicide. Women have body issues. So I've had body dysmorphia, which I've used now uh, as part of a stand-up uh, bit where I say me and my husband, like I would in my mind look like Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy because I couldn't accurately <laughs> see what I looked like. Um, and struggling with some bulimia and, and anorexia, it just it, it would be what they call ednos eating disorders, not otherwise classified. So when you can't get a diagnosis for it, they don't you just kind of slip in between the cracks. And so it was a lot of just then, you know, you hit rock bottom and and just find whatever resources are available and you just start pulling them in. And what I also found was the floor can drop. Like if you're curious about if it can get worse, it can. So I've at least stopped being curious about that. Uh, but when when you start having that awakening, then resources start to come in. And so reading more, meeting more people who actually did know how to handle emotions, finding new models for ways I wanted to be in life. And so now I get to talk about this because I say I'm the Cliff's Notes. You don't have to do it all wrong like I did and take so long. So let me just give it to you and we can kind of shortcut that. So that's, I guess, my roundabout way of talking about where I came from and how I ended up here. So great. I think I think we grew up in the same household. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so now now you're a relationship coach, among other things. And I want to I want to ask you, what was the spark that that was lit that got you elevated you into this area that you wanted to work in so again a lot of it was rock bottom and me having such a hard time classifying abuse as abuse i took so much and i actually gave so much and it just went undetected it seemed normal you know until it finally got bad enough to where i was like i don't think this is normal and it, it seemed to me that there was radio silence, like nobody was talking about this. Like I'm academically gifted. I'm doing well in my life. How come my relationships are so broken and feeling unfulfilled? And I just didn't see that many people talking about it that openly. 
And then also waking up to who I really was. I am in love with this planet and it's suffering in a lot of ways. And I, so I just actually think the, the fastest way to heal the planet is to heal the people on it because laughter is generative. And when people are confident and happy, they are making wiser choices for themselves and for the planet. And, and so putting those things together and seeing how much is just legacy. We got, you know, what we were given was what our parents were given, which is what they were given. And so it's, but it's broken. And so it's just at some time, just saying the buck stops here and I'm good at talking about feelings. I will talk about my feelings. I'll talk about anything about my life. And so again, just, just throwing it out there so that people just don't have to experience what I did. Yeah, that's exactly why I got into this field is because, you know, I, I, I was abused as a child, emotionally, physically, verbally, but I thought that's, that was a typical middle-class household. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until I got away from home and went to college that, you know, the first thing my friends put in front of me was marijuana. And, and then I, you know, I started to feel just down and out and uninterested, et cetera. And once I did a little self-discovery, I found out that, yes, I, I was abused. And at the time I didn't know it took, it took 41 years of battling my addictions to finally put my hands up and say, Hey, I need help. I don't know what I'm doing. And, and, uh, I finally found the right doctor who took four months in meeting with me every week to do the research, to properly diagnose my severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring. And he said that that is the root of my addictions. So with his treatment and me getting sober, um, it's been eight and a half years now, and I've never felt better in my life. And I'm every day I feel closer to my authentic self and I'm able, you know, I really want to put out there about all of these issues, especially for men who have such a tough time taking the mask off and talking about their stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, there's over 300 million people in the world who have depression, but only half of them get help. Right. Yeah. And, and unchecked depression and, and bipolar and all these other mental health issues. This is what happens. They, they, if they don't take care of it, it morphs into alcoholism mm -hmm. and drug and pill addiction and violence and domestic violence and rape and and all of these mass shootings we're, we're suffering in this country and, and others, it seems like at the end of every story, they say, oh, by the way, we found in the file that there's a record that this person had is struggling with mental health issues. And like yourself, I want to talk about this so that others don't have to go through what I went through. It was too damn painful. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be like that. And I, I had, 
I've got three friends in the last year who I talked to on a Wednesday and Monday I get a phone call from another friend and he says, Hey, did you hear about Joey hung himself over the weekend? Oh, and I'm like, Hey, this, this doesn't have to happen. So I, I hear you. And, you know, I just like to put it out there because I don't want to see others suffer because like you say, the flip side is happiness. And, you know, look, God wants everybody to be happy. So why not? Let me ask you about your style. What, what, how would you describe your style that you use? Is there a central message that you try to get across? Well, I guess I would describe my style as no BS because I don't like fluff. Um, even being a woman working with women, I still can't do the, the floofy pink marshmallow stuff because it takes too long and I just want to get to the point. So that's, I guess what I would call my style. And the central message, there's, there's a few, um, but it's that you, your happiness is available and it's the valuable product. It's not the understanding of what happened because we, we will never be able to truly understand what drove somebody to make the choices that they make. And it's about them. And that's not who we're working with so that you like are, are the valuable product and it's judgment and resistance that slows the process down. It's never about evidence that you can't have it. It's never that you're not deserving of it. It's just to the amount of programming that's been, that's been reiterated, reinforced, and it's just chiseling that away. Um, and so I think, yeah, that's the, like the, the two things I'm doing most is just being happiness is available. It's actually possible for you and get out of judgment. Cause that actually just doesn't do anything for anyone at all. That's just old school stuff, remnants of the past and nothing we need to deal with anymore. And, and how much power and freedom there is when we can prioritize our happiness and sometimes just set down things that aren't working anymore. Instead of trying to dig through them and sift through them and understand them, it's you can just set them down and choose something else. And that's, that's when it really gets fun. So, uh, yeah, you made it. Okay. Looking back at your experiences, um, what is there some aspect, something that occurred that was the most challenging for you that you went through? Um, in getting to where I am now, it hasn't been one singular aha, but little ones over time. And they, they seem to always come at anticlimactic moments where you just sort of realize some things but there was, I guess, actually, and, and some of them seem so mundane, but I had a coach. And so a lot of times it looks really awful when you are so close to a breakthrough. And all of a sudden, like that grace came where it was just coming so hard and heavy, the old stuff that I thought I'd work through, but it was back in my face. And I remembered her here, like it's coming up to go. It feels the same as it did because it's present, but it's coming up to leave. You just have to let it leave. And so that, and then 
then there's just a better way of handling the intensity, knowing that it's going to pass if I will let it pass. Um, so that was actually a big one. And then one of the questions that I often offer to my clients is what would unconditional love do? Because in relationships, what we tend to do is unconsciously, subconsciously try to fix the broken relationship with the parent. And what we're trying to get is that unconditional love that we were seeking as a child. And so I'm like, you can invite that in by just asking what would unconditional love do? Because it's really hard to look outside and see what it would do because nobody got unconditional love 100% of the time. So not many people really know how to do it well, but you can invite that energy in by asking. And there was one day where I was, again, I, I don't remember the specifics of what it was, but I, I'd cried two or three times in the morning and I was putting on my eye makeup and my rational logical self said, Oh, you should just skip it. You're just going to cry it off again. <laughs> but then I was like, well, what would unconditional love do? And unconditional love said, I will put this on as many times as you need to today. Mm. And there was just such a tenderness to that, that I did cry again. <laughs> and so I had to postpone putting it on, but I was just like, that's what loving presence really is. And so that was a moment that it was such a small gesture but a kindness that I often would not have given myself unless I'd asked that question. So that really started to even open up my curiosity even more about what unconditional love would do and have and be in my life. Awesome. Awesome. Well, one of the, one of my big talking points is letting people know that it's okay to ask for help. And obviously, you know, during your life experiences, you, experienced feelings and emotions and you know we're we're deeply affected and i i'm curious as to how you dealt with that did you ever ask for help and did it take some time and you know why not you know what was the barrier for you to ask for help at the beginning and 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 conversely what was the opening that you went to to share your issues and, and get help for what you were going through. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to have a twin sister that was my best friend and had an understanding of what was happening because she was living with at the same time. So I had some outlets sort of built in, which helped a lot. When we went to college and we went to separate colleges, that's when it got really difficult. And I didn't know what it was. So for a long time, I didn't ask for help because I did not know what was normal or not normal. And then when I finally did ask for help, I think I waited too long. The university, you know, I, I said, hey, I need help. I'm thinking of, of hurting myself. And they did not take immediate action. And I attempted the next weekend. And then from there, it's sort of that was a cry for help because even the doctor said, and it was kind of humiliating, but he's like, you would never have died from this wound, you know, because I think deep down I knew I didn't really want to die, but that was my cry for help. So one of the biggest barriers was an ineffective ability to ask. I didn't know how to ask. And what's interesting, that's even come up in my relationship with my husband, is we're both still learning how to effectively ask for what we'd like, knowing that it's okay to ask and to be clear. Because at the beginning, like I said, it was, I almost wanted somebody to accurately guess what I needed help with. Because all I knew was I felt 
bad, but I didn't know what the problem actually was. But as misguided as that was, you know, if your soul is really asking for help, it's, it's going to find a way. And so I ended up with a, a good counselor and a doctor that actually said, it's not, it's not depression, it's adrenal fatigue. And mm. so we actually got to work healing my body so that my thoughts could then start to be healthier thoughts. Um, and now, like I said, being, you know, in my forties and married and still working on being an effective communicator for identifying what it is I need help with. And then just asking for that. That's great. It's so important. And it's just, it's a big part of my message that, you know, it's not going to hurt. It's going to help. It takes more courage to ask for help than not to. And start where you are. It's going to be imperfect and ugly because a lot of us just don't know how, but just start somewhere. Yep. Yep. So I want to talk about your nuclear family a little. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up outside of St. Louis. So Cardinal Nation, you know, still a Cardinal fan. <laughs> um, yeah. So Southern Illinois, very, very Midwestern. I still get teased about some of the words that I say. So. <laughs> That's okay. I, I went to the Ohio State University, so I'm, I'm Midwestern as well. Okay. But I've lived on both coasts. Mm. Anyway. Let me ask you about your father. How would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show love, discuss emotions and feelings? It's funny because that last one makes me want to laugh. No, there was no discussion <laughs> of feelings. How I characterize my dad, he was sort of a classic strong and silent type, but I also call him the clutch man because there wasn't talk of emotional stuff. But when there was a time that I was really distraught or really needed emotional support, he's the one that showed up better than my mom. My mom was emotionally dismissive. She didn't know how to handle that. So just sort of tried to say, it's not important. Like I remember, I remember sixth grade, all the girls in the class got invited to a slumber party except for me. And I was devastated. And my mom is just seeing this as something that sixth grade girls do. And it's not important. They won't even remember this three weeks from now, you know, but in that moment, I'm devastated. So that is not getting in. And it was my dad that just let me sit on my lap and rub my back until I stopped crying. But on the day to day, not, not talking about feelings. And, and I still, to this day, don't feel like I really know my dad. And sometimes I even wonder how well my dad knows my dad. Mm, good point. Well, as a result of that, did, did it ever occur to you that yesterday and today's masculinity norms that men picked up either from their parents or the media or other guys that they hang out with, this egotistical macho man, good old boy network, never, you know, emotionless, never show weakness. Did, did you think that that prevented your father from come you know really talking about feelings and emotions and and you know being open to discuss anything that you wanted to discuss and maybe he feared that he would be labeled as not a real man if he went there yeah you know that 
I could only speculate if if that was the motivation, but I think that it would be impossible for the the good boys club, the strong and silent stereotype for that to have not have been part of why he didn't express. I I did not get to know his dad. He died when I was a year old, but from what I heard, there was there was no modeling. There was no example for talking about feelings. And so everything that I knew about my dad in any of his social support is just about um, situations, you know, activities, and a lot of them, including alcohol, because that's the only way that that there really was kind of a letting down of the barrier um, to some extent. And then again, being being a girl and being a child, I didn't even get led into that very often. So it's there's so much of a veil there, but I, I'm I just think that there's so much about the man being the provider, dealing with the stresses of work that that it's just kind of like I don't have time for this. That and it just kind of got pushed down. Yeah. And I think that's still the case and for the most part. Yeah. Um, so we we talked about abuse, both of us mm-hmm. in our families growing up. And so Tell me a little bit about that. Was it physical abuse, mental, emotional, verbal? In in my nuclear family, it was, how would you even classify it? It was subtle. And it would be somewhat financial. We can't afford that. Or spiritual, that everything came from God and it was outside of yourself. And so it, it just like, it wasn't allowed. Um there was never any outright verbal or physical abuse. However, I did see my dad hit my mom once um, and he had a big temper and we knew that it's even sort of a joke. But when dad got you kind of just skedaddled and, and got away because you didn't want to be in the line of fire. Um, but so it was it was around, which is, again, sometimes how it almost seemed sort of worse because then it's it didn't seem obvious and it could be classified as something else. Yeah. Well, conversely, in my house, it, uh, there was a lot of yelling and screaming. Um, my parents hit myself and my brother. Mm. Uh, my mother was not shy. She would verbally abuse everybody. Mm. She, she had the mouth of a drunken sailor and, uh, it was, it, it was, you know, I tried to walk on eggshells around the house for fear that if I did something wrong, somebody would come down on me and I'd get hit or yelled at or, you know, something would be taken away from me. So, um, yeah, like that's, that's hard. That's so stressful. And you can imagine what that amount of stress hormone does to a brain, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I didn't know that I was smoking pot as a result of those feelings and emotions and this severe depressive disorder that was reoccurring, which was going on, but I didn't know about it because nobody diagnosed it properly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was... I was high a lot of the time and I was working 
as an executive for top media companies in this country negotiating contracts for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I would play a little game of myself and challenge myself as to how high I could get and still maintain in the meeting. That, that was like the fun I was trying to achieve from it until everything kept, everything started to crash down. And, and, you know, I, I just couldn't go on like that. It was, it was too much, mm-hmm. but the stress was overwhelming. Plus I was traveling like pretty much every week, Monday through Thursday, Tuesday through Friday. It was, it was just, it was horrific. And, um, you know, that's to me, that's what in my research, when people don't know or don't get treated, don't ask for help for their mental health condition, whether it's depression or bipolar or whatever it is, anxiety, uh, that's when risky behavior pops up with the alcoholism and drug addiction, um, fighting others. I'm curious, did did you ever go through that phase growing up that whether it was alcohol or drugs or any kind of risky behavior? Again, from the outside, no. I was straight-laced, straight A's, because I actually expressed sort of the flip side of that, which is perfectionism. And so the high drive was in getting that perfect. Like if there was an A, but an A plus was available, I had to get the A plus. It was that conditionality of love, sort of having to get that. And then what I didn't realize until very recently was that how we got attention in my household was when something really went wrong and there was a lot of chaos or some sort of health crisis. And so what I had started to do was become kind of an emotional basket case and and just sort of fall apart. So, and, and oddly enough, that became an emotional addiction that would almost end up being sort of that sort of high of knowing help was coming. I didn't have to handle it all on my own and, and just, and it was ridiculous, you know? So as far as risky behavior, nothing legally risky, um, but just coming out in emotional addictions. Right. And you said you, you've gone through depression um so what was the point where you knew something was wrong and did you immediately ask for help or did did were you held back by certain thoughts or what how did you handle that so i think the first time that i really knew something was off was probably actually around junior high I just didn't, people seemed to be excited about things that I could hardly get into. And then in high school, definitely sort of, you know, making it and not liking myself. But so much of it was so easy to brush off as being a moody teenager. And so there was not really help to be gotten or not even sure like that I needed to ask for anything because this was just a phase, right? And then in college, it really sort of became very apparent to at one point I was on the phone with my sister and she said, it's 
like you're not even here. It's like I'm talking to depression there. It's like you're just gone. And that was, I think, the first time that it really. I was aware how much I'd let it take over my life. And then it was not long after that that I attempted suicide the first time. And that really just accelerated the awareness, the ability to get help, um, all of those things. So then from then on, as far as, because that wasn't the end of the depression, because I think what I had internalized was there was something wrong with me. So then all of my attempts were to try to fix what was wrong with me, which allowed the depression to stay. It wasn't until, and this wasn't, but maybe a year or two ago that I really got that there was nothing wrong with me and I could just actually be happy. Like I hadn't been depressed for a long time, but I hadn't been happy either. <laughs> so the thing that finally flipped the switch was, oh, I could just choose that. And that, that changed the whole ball game, but it was, it's not an overnight process, but it's worth every bit of it. And like you keep saying to ask for help, that's when I've made the, the biggest gains in the shortest amount of time. And they were solidified was when I had somebody to talk to, because a lot of times it does, it feels really bad when you're confronting stuff that you haven't wanted to face. That's why you were running away from it in the first place. But a lot of times it feels so awful that you could easily misinterpret it and think I'm going down the wrong path and give up. And that's what I think made my progress kind of take as long as it did was I would give up right before I was about to make a breakthrough because I didn't know what I was doing. So the value of help is just not in feeling alone. It's actually in making the process easier and faster. So did you ever reach out for professional help? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was in college, that came after the first oh, suicide yeah, attempt. Right, right. But then there was some healing for that, but it would come back. So I've attempted four times over my life, but I've gone to several counselors and I would get I would get pieces that I could incorporate in pieces. And now I just actually have a coach almost all the time because I just want to keep growing. Yeah. So now it's I mean, my husband even sometimes teases me. It's almost like a hobby, but I love having somebody to talk to. I love having somebody to reach out to so that I don't get stunted. I don't feel alone because even in building a business, it feels lonely sometimes. And that's the place that makes me the most antsy is that lonely feeling. That's like one of my triggers. So you just get support in your corner. And yeah, I... I reach out for help frequently. And sometimes now even getting better at asking for what I want, I can call my sister and say, I just need somebody to listen to me right now. I just need a hug right now. And so it's, it's coming easier and faster. It's just, it's actually a skill and we get better as we practice. So let me ask you about your husband. How does he handle it? How does he handle when he goes through down times or I don't know if he has any depression or anxiety, but does he ask for help? Uh, does he keep it in? How, what does he do? He is steadily improving. He does. He's not the depressed or anxious type. He is the very easy going type, but having a pretty tough childhood of his own, he just, his, his go-to was to rely on himself because he learned not to rely on his parents. Cause that was some of the pain points. And so he became very independent and so, no, there was not asking for help. Um, and just now starting to open up 
Um, for some, I don't even know if it'll, if it'll really be his MO ever. But he is getting better at being patient with himself and allowing me like more receptive to things that I say and that I do. And like looking outside, if that makes sense. Um, and, this- and for him too, like, it's interesting too, cause different people do different things. He does have the blessing and the gift of having that easy go lucky personality to where for him to buckle down and be held that way actually doesn't work for him all that well. It has to be a little bit more casual. Um, but for clients that I've had that tend to go into the seriousness, um, it's, it's really inspiring and like honoring to see them when they're saying, Hey, I think I'm drinking too much, <laughs> you know, cause their wife will definitely say it first. But when they say it and and kind of realize I'd like to connect with people, this doesn't necessarily have to go, but I don't want it to be the only way I connect with people. That's a big eye opener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's the focus of my work. One of the focuses is is to communicate to men that it's okay to ask for help. Mm-hmm. And that these masculinity norms that they they've experienced, they maybe they learn from their father, they learn from the media, they learn from their friends. Um, You know, that's unhealthy or toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. And then if it's not, like we've discussed, if it's not addressed, then a guy will start drinking and a guy will start drugging and his behavior gets out of whack and especially you know his behavior with women you know he a man his ego is so big that when he goes out with a woman he's going to talk about you know i got the biggest car and the greatest clothes and the biggest house and all this money and you know me 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 mm-hmm. as opposed to listening to what a woman has to say and creating a safe environment for a woman to be who she is mm-hmm. and, and not be intimidated by it. And I think that that's just, you know, that to get men to understand that that's, I was talking to a psychologist last week on the show and he calls it integrated masculinity. Hmm. And I thought that was a really good term. Yeah. uh, To show the balance and that, you know, a man has got, you know, when, when a woman wants to talk and tell you how her day was, whether, you know, whether it's a personal relationship at home, that the man, his role is to listen and maybe ask questions maybe empathize a little but most men want to fix and look i'm a man i i can't tell a woman what what the solution is because i'm not a woman Mm -hmm. and you know men can't do that and women don't like that anyway right because for her the solution 
is to just talk about it. That actually is part of the solution. I know it drives men crazy. It totally does. I tell the story of of what men don't understand is how women, they're going out shopping for a dress and they'll go in and out of 13 stores and walk out and they haven't bought anything. Mm -hmm. And a man, conversely, like myself, when I go in to buy a suit, I've done all the research on the Hugo Boss website. I know exactly what I want. I know my size. And I just ask, tell the guy, this is what I want. Get measured up, see what it needs to be tailored. And I'm out the door. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, in relationships, you know, that man has to make sure that there's a, a safe environment for the woman to do what she needs to do. She wants to be listened to because that makes her feel cared about. Mm -hmm. And that's the man's role. And men are just, first off, they're unknowledgeable of what their role is. And and that's one one of my points that I'm trying to get across to men. But now you talk about toxic, femininity and i i'm not clear on what that really is or looks like so yeah i i tend to talk about things that nobody's talking about because there is a paradigm shift we are moving from a male dominated society patriarchy and shifting into matriarchy and there's a natural that's just gonna happen that's there's because that's the yin and yang of balance but how patriarchy and this male dominated has become toxic. You can't talk about feelings. Everything has to be rational, logical, make sense, linear. Um, we have to fix problems, those sort of things. There is an equally dark side of the feminine. And if we don't look at that, we're just going to be doing this pendulum swing forever. Because what women tend to do is overly criticize and dominate with emotional manipulation mm-hmm. and never make a decision. I mean, <laughs> let's face it, we do that, you know? And if we don't, if we're not willing to look at that and how we bring that into our own personal relationships, we're just going to have the flip side of the coin, which is an equally bad male, uh, female dominated society. It's really about learning. They're just shadow sides, which means like these are just the tendencies when we've gone too far. I like that integrated masculinity because we'll need an integrated femininity because then they work together so well because there are times, I mean, science has become overly rationally, logically driven because there are some miraculous things about life that do not lend themselves to uh, bench and test tubes uh, setups. That doesn't mean they're not real. It just means that they're not linear and they can't happen in a contrived situation like that. We're going to have to start trusting a little bit more that intuitive side of ourselves um, to let things not have to go in a linear progression. That's what we're seeing with this predatory capitalism is that we're only supposed to go up. No, there's a flow. And so the toxic femininity is just women looking at their wounded parts so that with themselves and with their partners, they do not become overly critical dominate and tell somebody they don't know what they're thinking and feeling um, and be harsh that way, because there should also be a safe space for a man to 
be himself, which is sometimes figuring things out on their own. You guys do like to at least have one, two, maybe three passes on your own before you ask for help. And some of that's going to be just about how the male brain is, but to get better at maybe opening up a little bit sooner and women to having patience with that. So there actually is safety to ask us for help, because if you're just going to get criticism, that's not going to be helpful or inviting either. Well, my point is that that men have to have more intimate and trusting relationships with other men. Yeah, absolutely. And and that is, uh, and for women to support that by letting go of the insecurity that that means anything about themselves. That's what everybody's just got this wounding this that makes them a narcissist that says it's all about me and you're hurting my feelings when it's really just, hey, we're all just figuring stuff out. No one person can meet anyone needs. You're awesome. Know your awesomeness. And then we can all actually have fulfilling relationships. But you need help to get there because a lot of times you're just too close to the problem to even know what the problem is. I mean, don't you agree? I mean, when they emote. And they talk to all their women friends, all their female friends, on a pretty regular basis. And I think that men need, you know, it's so tough for a man even to open up to another man. And a lot of times you get feminized men who go and tell their problems to a woman, which like I referred to before is ridiculous because first off, a woman doesn't want to hear that. Number two, she doesn't, she can't relate to it. She's not a man. Mm -hmm. So men have to have more relationships with men to understand the nuances of life and the nuances of women so that when they do, you know, integrate and have communication with women, that they understand a little deeper what their role is so that there's that, like you said, that integrated masculinity and femininity where you can have healthy and happy relationships, even though, you know, there may be mental health issues, you know, no one's perfect. There's all kinds of issues that we carry around, but it's not necessary to project my negative feelings on you or vice versa. So, Mm -hmm. um, it's just, uh, you know, men, it's just so hard for them to open up and talk about what's really going on. And they don't want to make waves, but then they get the short end of the stick. So I say, hey, you know, you've got to talk about what you want, what you need, mm-hmm. and 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 talk that out, whether it's another man or another woman, you know, you can have that's a healthy interaction. Well, and that is what I find to be the biggest benefit of a coach, because sometimes it is hard to do that in your current relationships because you don't even know how to start, how to break the ice, how to introduce a new dynamic to the relationship. So start in a neutral one that is all about you. That's 100% geared to and invested in your ability to improve in that area. And so you talk about asking for help that sometimes I'm like, are people equating asking for help and getting coaching? It's what you would do in business. It's what you would do for like people go to parenting coaches, reading coaches, tutors, like call it a tutor, 
a coach, a mentor, a facilitator, whatever, that's what you do when you want to improve in an area. And if there's something that's not working in your life to that's an easy, easy step and a very worthwhile investment to make that's going to make the rest of it easier. So let me ask you, all the experiences you, you've gone through in life, what have you learned? What's the biggest thing that you've learned from all of these experiences you've had? The biggest thing that I've learned that's coming and opening now is my sovereignty. I get to choose. I am the number one, like, yay nay veto power of how I'm going to feel and everything that's happening in my life outside of me is always just pointing to where I need more self-love and where I need to show up more because a lot of times those areas that aren't working it's because I want somebody else to do something when really it's I need to show up for me I need to love me and as soon as I even start to get curious about that it already starts to open up and shift that I think is is one of the biggest ones that's come recently and it's kind of advanced. I think the other one too that's helped me get through so much is it's coming up to go. It's it's not coming up because it's going to last forever and it's never going to go away and I'm broken and this is how I'm just going to have to live my life. It's coming up so I can let it go. These are the the funny thoughts that that I was questioning whether or not I was worthy that I was believing that it would last forever. Those, they don't feel good because they're not true and they're coming up to go. And that's helped me through a lot. It's kind of like this too shall pass. Yep. Recognize those feelings. Look at them. Say, okay, see you later. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so one last question. Personally, how do you describe masculinity? I look at masculinity kind of in the five element Chinese medicine, just sort of from my training, so that in a broader context, it's a gift. Like you said, it is a sort of like a safe container almost for for women. And there is the rational linear element to it, kind of an uh, outward moving energy. Um, That would be in like the healthy sense. And then as as it's kind of shifted a little bit too far that way of demanding logic where and, and linearity in, in places and ways that are nonlinear like people <laughs> um, and, and some processes that are just nonlinear, um, that that can be overly dominated. And, and they're kind of an outward moving energy so that activity is important and, and seeing them being action oriented and to me, what I would find, you know, if you want to classify as one of the sexiest thing about men, about masculinity is confidence and sort of a knowing who they are and where they're going. Yeah. Yeah. That's that authentic self that mm-hmm. every, every day gets better for me. And, you know, what I'm, what I'm going to express or communicate it, I don't think about how others are going to react to it, which I used to do all the time. Now, I don't care what others think. I've done the research. I've 
studied my self-discovery on my behavior, and I know what I'm talking about, and those are my beliefs. And if somebody doesn't want to hear it or, or disagrees, fine. We can discuss it, and we can even agree to disagree, even though my girlfriend doesn't like that. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't care. Uh, you know, I, I have to be vulnerable and talk about my story in order to help others. And that's the, my purpose in life. So I'm not embarrassed. That's the way it's been it for better or for worse, you know, and I'm here and I feel great and I want to help others. Like you said, I don't want others to have to go through what I went through. It's too painful. Yeah. And I think the healthy expression of that is, you know, it and you present it but it's not insisting that somebody else agree. Like you said, the ability to agree to disagree, to say, this is me and I'm not going to change it or shrink because of anybody else, but I'm not going to throw it in their face either because we get it when we get it. We get it when we're ready and other people's responses are about them. And so I don't have to get defensive about it. No, I can't control people, places, or things. I, I can't, control what someone's going to say, what someone's going to do. I can't do that. I don't have that power. No. And it's funny how many clients, you know, as a relationship coach, that's, that's where we start. If, if my husband would do this and I'm like, but he's not here. You are. So let's work on you. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Let me really in here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's great. I'll just give you two seconds about my views on masculinity. I think, there's three things that men need to uh, master. Number one, obviously, they need to be strong and not just to mean, you know, lift heavy boxes and refrigerators and pianos, but meaning they have to be strong in having the discussions that they know have to be mm. have to be had. Yeah. And the truth needs to be spoken about, whether it's, uh, you know, someone in the family or someone in the workplace, and they know that the truth is not going to be easy for someone to swallow, but they know that they have to have the strength to make sure that that discussion happens. Mm-hmm. Number two, uh, the um, men, I believe, need to realize that they don't have to take life so seriously. Yeah. They need to be light, lighten up, mm-hmm. you know? And, you know, God wants us to have a great time and everyone walks around so serious and, and they need to lighten up and, you know, just get, it's okay to be goofy. That's okay. It's part of life. And the third thing is I think a man has to have some connection with spirituality, however he wants to Describe that, look at it, study. There's a million ways to make a connection. And that's totally up to the man. But I feel like he needs to blend that into the rest of his life to for grounding purposes and you know to have something to to go to at times when you know you're you're stuck and you're you're out of answers and and you believe that having that relationship with a creator is going to help move you forward in your life in, in a lot of ways that, you know, 
the results that you want you intend to achieve so that's how i see it well as you can see joylin's story is quite remarkable she's demonstrated courage bravery and giving to her community she's a true role model for our world today we're honored to have you on our podcast today do you have any final thoughts you want to share with us no i loved your final part about masculinity i think that was brilliant so i think that's a great ending note great well look i want i want to continue to dialogue moving forward so that i can learn from you and i can help others and i just want to say thank you again listeners please look out for our podcast time out for mental health wherever you get your podcasts including the mental health news radio network and healthylife.net as well as apple podcasts and keep your eyes out for my upcoming book you don't have to swallow your gun a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. Please contact me for personal coaching and speaking engagements through my website, timcrass.com. That's T-I-M-K-R-A-S-S.com, timcrass.com. And don't forget, have fun, everybody. <laughs>